Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Support for Survivors. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Today, we welcome Mike Bacardi to the show. Mike is founder and CEO of Safe Hiring Solutions, a security firm based out of Indiana who represents thousands of clients throughout the United States. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's so interesting. Your company does so many amazing things. And you represent definitely a diverse group of different companies from corporations to schools to nonprofits, everything in between. Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and and how your career has evolved into starting Safe Hiring Solutions? Because you definitely have a very long and storied career when it comes to crime prevention and helping victims of crimes stay safe. You bet. Um, I almost think it's by accident, but then again, I don't know if anything in life is an accident. I grew up in a family full of law enforcement. You know, I've joked a lot, you know, most of the men in my family were in policing or prison. So it made for some interesting Thanksgivings. (laughs) And I honestly think my parents really thought I was going to law school. I graduated from, was about to graduate from Wabash College. And my dad asked me, hey, what are you going to do? You going to law school? I was like, oh, no, I've applied to the Indiana State Police. And (laughs) he's like, no, like he'd been there 30 years. And with that reaction, it actually he talked me into applying in Nashville, Tennessee, I became a police officer in Nashville, right when the city was really turning into a really kind of a cosmopolitan city. Spent about two years in Nashville and applied to law school because I thought, boy, this job's not at all what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> uh, we, we help nobody. And I remember during the interview, I, you know, why do you want to be a cop? Oh, I want to help people. And I was like, man, all we do is show up after people get hurt. We're not doing anything. And about that time, we had a pretty um, visionary mayor and his wife had heard that I had been part of a group that did some research and we were looking at interpersonal violence in Nashville. And we we realized very quickly, looking at the data, we had 25 women and children die every year, killed by somebody that said they loved them, right? Mm-hmm. And what we found was, wow, we've been to their house a lot as police officers. These aren't isolated incidents. And so we ended up starting what became the largest law enforcement-based domestic violence division of a police department in the United States in 1994. I stayed with the unit three years, but I've always had an itch to be entrepreneurial. I'm just, you know, the up and down paramilitary, do it this way because we've always done it this way, kind of, it's not me. So I kind of took what we had built in Nashville, we reduced the domestic murder rate by more than half. And I started working with Department of Defense and Justice, later Homeland Security, taking that model out across the world to kind of plant that. Um, 
And so that's kind of uh, the foundation of everything I've done and then started safe hiring 18 years ago. But that, again, was setting in Washington, D.C., closest I got to law school uh, <laughs> with the American Bar Association on a teen dating violence program. Mm-hmm. And on one of the breaks, a couple of the public schools said, hey, do you do background checks? We're struggling. And I first you know, looked it up and I was like, no, and I'm not going to. There's a lot of companies that do that. But then some schools here in Indiana were having problems. They were hiring sex offenders. They weren't showing up. That's kind of the precipice for how I started safe hiring was to really help Indiana schools who were struggling with uh, hiring and volunteers and vetting them properly. Something I very much appreciate about you, and I know that you always, you talk about this and other people that you see all the time being big thinkers, but you certainly are one of those people. And I just so much appreciate this, that you'll see where there's this gap in services and you kind of are like, okay, what are we going to do about it to try to address that problem? And clearly you've been thinking that way since back when you were a Metro detective in Nashville, which I think that people may not understand how big of a deal that really is. I understand law enforcement when it comes to domestic violence, they haven't always been great. And I get that. Like when you're going out to the same house nine, 10 times in a row and you just don't understand, well, why isn't she leaving? Um, It is, it's hard, but when you really get into the psychology behind it, it's a lot easier to understand, but you know, you're coming from that background where you're already seeing it for what it actually is, which was unique and amazing. And then you're starting this company to fill these gaps. And I think that's kind of how your company has grown into what it is now is that you've just seen all of these different things that needed help and need to be addressed. And you've done your best to try to fill in some of those spaces. I think it's a blessing and a curse, right? Like if you're wired that way, because you can't shut it off either. And sometimes my wife, you know, she'll be like, I'm not asking you to solve the problem. And I'm like, all right, I get it. I get it. But you know, I just think that's the way I'm wired. And, you know, from a business perspective, I think, you know, anybody, a young entrepreneur, you got to be solving a problem, right? Because if you're not solving a problem, you know, there's no reason for the business. And then whether or not people will pay for the problem solve becomes the other part of it. But yeah, that's that's what we do. I mean, the, the name of the company, Safe Hiring Solutions, or we've got different brands within the, the company, but they're all solutions-based. And you know, we've been able to balance both solving problems and doing it for a price that non-for-profits can afford. You know, mm-hmm. we work with all kinds of clients, but schools and non-for-profits are two of our biggest client bases. Why don't you talk a little bit about the background checks? Because until I met you, I didn't realize what what issues existed there. And it's actually cool the way I met Mike one of his people who are in leadership in his company is somebody I went to high school with, Lauren Thomas. So I've known her since I was, you know, 12 or 13, probably. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I remember Lauren walking in and saying, hey, you got to meet Shaughnessy. And I can't remember how you guys had reconnected somehow, maybe social media. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Background checks. You know, the problem is everybody says, oh, we do background checks. Well, it's kind of like the Wild West. Like there's no standard of care. And when I say that, sometimes attorneys on the other side, not to say anything about an attorney, uh, (laughs) they'll be like, oh, there's all kinds. There's all kinds of rules. You know, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you can have state specific. Those are all protecting the consumer. They do not drive an effective background check. The Fair Credit Reporting Act just simply says, if you have negative information, 
you have these duties, you know, to provide a copy of the report, a summary of their rights, things you have to do to protect the consumer. I could do the most awful background check in the world. Mm-hmm. And we would be totally compliant because there's no requirement for it outside of a few niche markets like Indiana schools, there's statutes that drive how they do it. Um, so I think we got into background screening at a time, you know, almost 20 years ago. And a, a lot of it was kind of like paddling a canoe up river, right? Like, you know, hey, I'm going to, I can do this for $9 and you're wanting to charge 18. Uh, but what they were doing was just a total waste of money. And that's really what happened here in Indiana. A lot of the schools at that time were using the Indiana State Police limited criminal history. Not a problem with the state police. They only can report the data they receive. What happened was one of the local school districts had hired two sex offenders, came back clear in that background check. And it turns out as we, you know, I started looking into it. That's why I ended up starting the company, but the clerk's office was not sending the data to the state. So Marion County, largest County in Indiana, the, all their criminal data was not in that database. And they found that many communities across the state were like that. So, so we took that kind of information and built a background check that has checks and balances. So if one system fails that you have other places, it should show up, but it's not going to cost a fortune to do it. That's amazing. And I had no idea again, until I talked to you that not all background checks are created equally. I had no idea. And what's interesting about it is you mentioned that there's a heightened standard for schools and you and I have talked at length about one case that I have where um, a company hired a man who had pending child molesting charges, which would actually probably show up in a Google search, let alone a background check. But I didn't know anything about the nuances of how those are and that they also have a heightened standard that there was legislation passed in the last few years where they have to run a more stringent check, just like schools, but also learned from you that what kind of recourse is there when uh, they don't do it. And it seems like civil litigation is about it. I don't think that there's any any other recourse um, at this point in time. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think both that example and that industry, there's there's really no auditing tool. And even with public and private schools, you know, the idea that somebody could audit the background screening process because the schools have so many compliance issues, right? This Mm -hmm. is just one of probably hundreds and hundreds, you know, so the department of education would not have the bandwidth to be able to ensure that a school's doing every single thing correctly, but the legislature has done a really good job of carefully crafting and designing and articulating, which is not always easy, how to do it correctly. And these are the standards. And we helped with that because quite honestly, any of my competitors can do the same thing. It's not just exclusive to safe hiring, but if you're going to do it, it's got to be done like this to be done correctly. Absolutely. Why don't you talk a little bit more? I want to get really into the meat and potatoes of safe ministry here in a moment, but if you can touch on, we've talked about how you have kind of grown the company to do a lot of different things, depending on the needs that have arisen. What are some of those other things that you guys are doing? Yeah, we've built, I think, five proprietary software systems now. So we we have a visitor management system called Safe Visitors. So this is primarily being used by corporate and a lot of schools across the United States. We have everything, uh, every 
kind of level of a school district from a single building charter school to the seventh largest school district in the U.S., We've, we can vet their volunteers, their vendors, the background screening, credential them. Then when they show up on premise, they scan in and out. So it creates logs. It can create exclusion lists. Or if you're dealing with custody issues and uh, parents going through a divorce or um, can't have access to children. So we, we've created ways of being able to flag people that are coming in. We have an online reference checking tool because you and I both know 80% of sex <laughs> offenders haven't been caught yet. Mm-hmm. So I love this, this reference yeah. tool you have. And it's probably the tool that's the least used that we have. Um, and it's, and it's very inexpensive, but you're not going to catch all your sex offenders with a criminal background check. You mm-hmm. know, you're maybe 20% if you're lucky. We do online training, and this is the child abuse prevention training is where we've started, and that's primarily focused on youth-serving organizations, church and ministry, and that'll expand as we build more content. All around safety and security is kind of our lane. We have an assessment zone, which is a threat assessment software, vulnerability assessment. So for organizations that need to kind of figure out, hey, how how well are we doing? It kind of looks at policies and procedures, the structure of the building, crisis, you know, teams, if they have them. It just kind of does a complete assessment and provides a roadmap for them of things that need to be implemented or changed. Um, We have a volunteer management system, uh, just manages that whole background screening and vetting and application and renewal and arrest alert, which is kind of unique product. Arrest alert, we integrate with about 93% of the jails. So not only we do a background check, but as soon as that's complete, we can move them into a database. So if they get arrested anywhere in the U.S. in those 93% of jurisdictions, it's going to give that client a real-time alert. That You, you had know. that happen, right? Didn't you have a, a school somewhere yeah. locally where they got arrested in the middle of the night and by 8 a.m. they were able to take care of that, fire that person immediately? Not only the school, he also volunteered in a neighboring a school. school. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They both were notified as soon as he was booked into the jail so they can get out in front of it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so those are kind of, you know, some of the other things. And then we're working on a tool for schools primarily to manage it's not a threat assessment tool. There are threat assessment tools that exist, but this is more managing student assistance when you have students in crisis to make sure they're not falling through the cracks. You're referring them, getting them the help, and just a tool to help schools manage students and to make sure that they're getting the help they need so it doesn't turn into something like an active shooter event. It's awesome. I want to also highlight again real quick, because this it's just amazing when you told me this with the reference checks, people can actually do it anonymously because we talked at length about how, I mean, all of us have been asked at one point in time, probably by someone that we didn't want to write a reference for and, you know, getting out of that or having to tell them and, you know, them not having the self-awareness to understand that you're probably not going to get a good one from me. But the point here is if it is someone who has been accused of those kinds of things, or you had um, any kind of worry that something like that was going on, you can put that down in the reference and it's not going to come back to you. It's anonymous, right? That's correct. So a couple of things we try to do is one, get them to 
to expand. So everybody kind of asks for three references. That's kind of the standard, right? Well, we're mm-hmm. all, we all walk in armed with three references and none of us walk in saying, Hey, I'm going to give them two good references <laughs> and I'm going to pick somebody. It's really going to say something horrible <laughs> about it. Right. So we try to move them to five or six, really stretch them. And then mm-hmm. you can define, we want, you know, a supervisor, former supervisor, peer. I mean, you can, you can really define what types of reference you want. And then it just aggregates all the data. We do it in a Likert scale model, mm-hmm. but it's a hundred percent transparent in terms of the, the reference knows that it's not going to tag them for anything they say. And we're looking at adding the ability that say, Shaughnessy, you fill out a reference Mm-hmm. The last question might say, hey, you think there's anybody else that we should talk to about this candidate? So now we start to move. And this is kind of the law enforcement, right, where they knock on a door and they develop a, another reference and they start to move out from the original group. So we're starting to look at, you know, being able to allow the references to add somebody else they think we should talk to. That's awesome. I think just it's really cool because all of these different things that you're doing, all these different moving parts, is it really does feel like you're creating a pretty thorough package to vet these people out both before, during, and after, you know, anything happens. And I think that that is important. So in that vein, let's kind of um, transition into talking about safe ministry. Can you tell us the mission behind that project, kind of what it is and what you guys are doing? Yeah. So we've worked with church and ministry for a long time, probably 15, 16 years. We've partnered with Brotherhood Mutual up in Fort Wayne for, I think, 15 plus years. I think going into the pandemic and actually before the pandemic actually started, we had already realized, hey, we need to rebrand our ministry work. Safe hiring is confusing. You know, a lot of them look at that and think, oh, no, we don't need a staffing company or Um, We don't hire a lot of employees. I mean, even some of your large, large churches, you know, in terms of employees, maybe they have a hundred, you know, in a mega church, but they may have 10,000 volunteers. So we rebranded going into coming out of the winter of 2020, right into the pandemic. I didn't have anybody to lead that. And (laughs) I thought I had somebody internally that would love it Mm -hmm. and she didn't want it. And one of my uh, former pastors and a good friend reached out to me and said, hey, um," he said, I'm thinking about doing a 180 and leaving the ministry after 30 years full time. Well, that was fortuitous. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I didn't even say anything the first time he called. I actually, he wanted me to kind of look at his resume and help him kind of get it sharpened up for non-ministry type work. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I got off the phone, I went to my wife and go, you're not going to believe who just called here. <laughs> so a week later, I finally sat down with Don and I told him what we were doing and how we were doing it. And so he came on board. Um, he didn't know anything about <laughs> violence and abuse, and but he knows how the church thinks. He knows mm-hmm. how they speak. He knows the culture. And so blending that with a lot of our expertise is, you know, we created Safe Ministry in 2020, and we've really kind of got four lanes. Obviously, the background checks, we've already been, you know, doing that for years. But one of the big focuses was on the online child abuse prevention. You know, a lot of the approaches kind of uh, was in-person training where you might reach 30 or 40 percent of your volunteer base, but you were still missing 70 percent. So, We went out and 
we got experts that were great communicators on our team and we created kind of a fast paced online program, both for volunteers. And then there's an extra, I think four modules for staff and volunteers, how to create a culture of prevention and really just driving them through understanding grooming, grooming the adult community um, and just empowering them to keep their eyes and ears open and watch and, and protect the kids. And so that's kind of the core product with safe ministry that's being launched right now is really just in, in light of everything you see in the news right mm-hmm. now. I mean, there's a pandemic of, of yes. sexual abuse within the, the church right now. Mm-hmm. There is. And, you know, we've talked so much about this and how, being especially in a volunteer capacity in a church or school is just a predator's dream. And no matter the church really has to have this foundation in place to be able to combat that because it's, I think it's going to continue to be that way. Those, these people are going to be attracted to situations like this just because it gives them access to children. And so when you have the proper protocols and procedures in place and arming your, both your staff and your other volunteers with knowledge, that is the way we combat this. And that is what safe ministry is doing. In my opinion, is trying to arm all of these people with the proper knowledge to, to see it for what it is and to say something. Yeah, that's exactly right. You don't want to be the path of least resistance, right? And, you know, we say this a lot. If you're using these very cheap tools, you are no match to a predator because their desire, their passion, their intensity to get to our children is stronger than anything you've ever come up against. And until you understand the enemy that you're trying to keep out of your organization, you don't understand how motivated they are. And so, yeah, do not be the path of least resistance. And, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, simple things that we train and it's not going to cost the church very much money mm-hmm. to implement these protocols that really increase the safety of the the children. I know that you put a lot of emphasis too on making sure their volunteers are trained, which we we get is difficult because oftentimes there, I mean, there could be depending on the size of the uh, church, it could be hundreds, it could be thousands, but the, it is just so very important because as we've talked about these, the volunteers are the lifeblood of the organization. That's what keeps everything running, but they're also the ones because of who are doing all the work. And so it is so important that they're trained to, to notice those red flags, to understand what grooming looks like and to have the, for example, you know, no child is ever alone with one adult. There always has to be two adults, things like that. The rules that you teach on to make sure that we can prevent it and notice if it is something that doesn't look quite right. And it's all got to be done so that you don't just mislabel creepy people, right? Like we all have, we have odd people in our families, right? So just being odd, you know, shouldn't be a red flag. So it's informed intuition. That's, you know, the heart of, you know, what Jen Linwall talks about in her modules. So it's really just helping them and equipping them with the knowledge they need to be successful. That's awesome. And 
as part of that, I know that you all do a lot of trainings as we talked about online, but also now starting to do some in-person stuff. Can you tell us about the regional safety summit that's going to happen later this month? Yeah, we're really excited. We've got the regional safety summit here in, well, it's in Whitestown, north suburb of Indianapolis on September 22nd. And it it really, the theme of this is creating a culture of prevention. And so we're looking at it from a couple different lenses. One, clearly the abuse uh, and abuse prevention lens. So we're going to do six TED Talks, of which you're doing one, um, in the morning. And so these are 20 minute and they're going to be fast moving, but they're going to be packed with information from our experts that are coming in from literally all over the country. The other thing that I think we're going to highlight is both from a prevention base, kind of on this middle ring we talk about is kind of de-escalation, being able to calm, being able to, you know, bring uh, maybe somebody that's a little bit agitated and really kind of calm that person down. And then there's some behavioral recognition. All of this, along with Joelle, who's one of our team members coming in from San Diego, you know, mm-hmm. and so Joelle is a survivor. And so everything we do, including the online training and uh, live events, um, these are survivor centric. These are, you know, um, and not all the trainings are like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've heard a lot over the last couple of weeks and and they may have been well-intentioned, but they were bringing perpetrators into the training, but the impact it was having on survivors. And these may be volunteers who have never told anybody about this. So, you know, making sure that you're trauma informed with your training so that, you know, you're not, I don't know how you can do this and keep kids and and people safe without having a a survivor centric model. And so that's a, a big focus of what and how we're doing this. Absolutely. I always tell everyone, I, you know, even what we're doing when I am um, helping you guys out that day is here's what you need to do so that you don't see me. So you don't get sued and spoiler alert. It's just doing right by the victim. That's it's just really as simple as that. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you think that listeners need to know or hear from your purview today? I would just encourage them, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a, a leader or a volunteer, you know, just like the training, you know, we're trying to get to the heart of everybody. And the more people that know, the more people that understand, the safer our communities become. That's so absolutely true. Knowledge is power. And certainly it is in this context. Okay, Mike, we end every show with the same three questions. Question one, what does courage mean to you? You know, that's an interesting question. And in light of kind of what we're talking about here with abuse, I would say that, you know, courage is to wake up every day and face an abuser, right? You know, probably one of the biggest myths over the last 30 years, I even hate to say that, is just this belief system that, you know, somebody that uh, is a survivor is weak by some means, but just the strength and the courage every day to get up and face what's happening inside their home and understanding the reasons they don't leave. And, you know, I've often said, I can think of a million reasons why I would not leave. Maybe the biggest driver is understanding from my seat that 75% of survivors are killed 
after they leave. Mm-hmm. And so just, um, you know, understanding that courage, I would also say, you know, if you're a leader, you know, I, when we started the change in Nashville, this was not popular. It was not popular within the police department. Mm-hmm. I could have picked, you know, I had an officer one time somewhere in the country asked me, why did you pick domestic violence? Because there's so much resistance to that. And I said, that's a funny question. I said, A, it picked me. I didn't pick it. And B, at the end of this training, I see positive movement when people start to understand what it really is. That's amazing. That's, and it's so true. It, it's the hard stuff, right? And that's courage in and of itself, I think, is, is sticking with it from, from your perspective when you did it. Number two, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Kathy Walsh was the, and matter of fact, she still is the executive director of the Tennessee Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. She one time said, when I was a young, hard firing detective, she said, systemic change happens with gentle pressure relentlessly applied. I was more about just knocking people over, like, <laughs> you got to do this, right? This well, is the right way. Yes. And those words have rung in my head for 30 plus years. You know, when I get frustrated with the pace of change or, you know, it's just understanding, it's just that gentle pressure always there. And so, you know, I've kind of weaved that within our leadership team, you know, we want to solve problems. We want to move fast, but just understand it's just that, that gentle pressure, but just don't quit. It's always there and keep pushing. That's really, really good. I like that a lot. And last question, what is one question that you wish more people would ask you? Yeah, I think a lot of people, I I wish they would ask me more about, you know, how did you build a successful business? Because I I see these in the media, social media, and a lot of times companies are about a person. And I said, I've been over the last five or six years trying to make this company less and less about me. And it's more about the people that we have brought in, our leadership team that have, you know, equally yoked passion, drive, skill sets that are different than mine. And and so just, you know, really under, you know, as we talk about business, this is not Mike McCarty. You know, matter of fact, I'm more and more, I'm trying to step away and then focus on maybe uh, selfishly, I get to focus on the things I want to focus on, which is back to the training and, um, you know, the abuse prevention and where I really started my career. Well, I'm not sure you can call it selfish when what you're doing is helping people, (laughs) but I get what you're saying. Um, Mike, thank you so much for being here. I certainly believe that the world could use more big thinkers like you. So thank you for all you do with your business to try to help keep people safe. Absolutely. Thanks for having me course. And thank you to our listeners. As always, please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time.